just a few minutes, we'll be coming to the Lord's table. And uh, one of the things we do is we do this in remembrance of Jesus. He said to do that, take the cup in remembrance of me. Uh, as often as you drink it, take the bread in remembrance of me. And so in a few moments, we'll come to the table to remember Jesus. Now, when he told us to do that, I seriously doubt that Jesus was afraid that we were going to forget. Uh, I, you know, it's highly unlikely that the disciples a couple years later would be hanging out together and say, yeah, you remember that guy, the carpenter guy? Um, what was his name? You know, uh, did, did, did those miracle things, walk on water thing? I can't remember his name. No, they're going to remember Jesus. What they need to remember is the cross of Jesus and to remember that he came not just to teach some nice lessons, tell neat stories, pat children on the head, but he came to die for a lost humanity. And so when we come to the table in a few minutes, it's coming so that we can focus on Jesus, sovereign Lord of our lives, Savior of our souls. And one of the things that means is that we remember him not just at this moment, but to come to the table to say, I want to remember Jesus at every moment throughout my life. Not just come to remember Jesus, but to be remembering Jesus constantly. Not that he is to be thought of as Lord and yielded to as Lord on a, a periodic basis, but rather he is constantly everywhere Lord of our lives. And one of the interesting things about that is that he is Lord of every part of our lives. The things that we call big and the things that we consider small, he is still Lord of our life. And uh, the problem that the readers of Romans would be having is that they were thinking, well, Jesus is Lord of my life. He's Lord of all of my life. And therefore, I need to make sure everybody does what I do so they can be obeying Jesus. They were trying to, to be right but they were imposing on others who had just a different point of view. Again, not on, on the core issues, but on just you know, the peripheral kinds of issues. And it's at that point that Paul says, well, yes, Jesus is Lord over the tiniest part and over the smallest opinion that you have. But when Jesus is Lord, it means that you're going to look like Jesus. And Jesus came to die for people who had wrong opinions. And so you're going to love them. And you're going to accept them and the word that he uses. You're going to welcome them uh, into your life. And that's what he's been talking about here. If we plunge into the scripture, I don't have time to read uh, every verse this morning, but I, I want to just highlight a few of them. But in verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. The word unclean can also mean common. Uh, the idea of being there is so common and ordinary that it's not worthy of giving to God and lifting up to God in praise. And that's where the idea of unclean uh, comes in with the word common. But he says, I have come to be persuaded. Nothing is unclean in itself. Do you know what it took for Paul to get there? I mean, Paul was raised in a world and an environment where things were unclean. Foods were unclean. Practices were unclean. Other people of the wrong stripe were unclean. Paul grew up thinking that God was all about assigning unclean to things. And he was all about, Paul in his life was all about not colliding with anything unclean because after all, that would disqualify him from knowing and loving God. 
And so Paul grew up with this, this, uh, this ingrained notion that some things are just absolutely, by their essential nature, they are unclean. But what happened to him was that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus turned him around. Jesus brought Paul to see that God's love doesn't come with constraints and restrictions on it, but rather it is given to a lost humanity. Paul came to see that if God did not come and reach out and grab a hold of the unclean, he would never have grabbed hold of Paul either. And so Paul said, I've, I've become persuaded that nothing in and of itself is unclean, but, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. In other words, there are some things, and they're not in and of themselves evil per se, but they have an evil or a harmful or a destructive function in someone else's life. You know, for example, um, a little piece of paper that might be, or a cardboard that might be a couple inches across and a few more inches uh, up and down uh, is not evil in and of itself. It's not even evil if you paint a little picture of a king uh, on it and call it a king. It's, it's not evil if you put a queen on one and a jack on one and numbers and, and diamonds and spades and things. Uh, um, it's, it, you know, the cards in and of themselves are not evil, but for some people they are destructive. I mean, you've known people with gambling problems. Uh, Debbie's one of them. Uh, <laughs> all right. She said I could tell this story, so don't worry about it. Uh, but her great-grandfather was heavily involved in gambling. In fact, he uh, raised greyhound uh, racing dogs, and he would feed the racing dogs steak, and he would let his family go hungry. And that's how deeply he was into gambling. And so Debbie's grandfather, the son of the, the racing guy, uh, decided that in his home there would never be anything remotely related to gambling at all because he had seen what it had done to the family where he grew up. And so there were no playing cards in his home, none, zero, zilch. And so Debbie's mother grew up in a home without playing cards. And so Debbie grew up in a home without playing cards. But she and her sister would sneak across the road or wherever to the neighbor's house, and that's where they learned how to play solitaire, and they would play with playing cards there. You know, so, but, uh, uh, but being an evil and wicked child... <laughs> Now, what, what happened, though, what, what, what happened, though, was uh, we went to England because uh, her dad, who was a, a, a pastor, had swapped parsonages with a pastor in England, and so the England guy came to America, and, and they went to England. And so we spent a little time uh, there with them as well. And uh, while we were there, they discovered in the parsonage a pack of playing cards. And Debbie's mother held a pack of playing cards. Debbie and her sister taught their mother how to play solitaire. <laughs> and she played, and for two solid days, she just played nothing but solitaire. Wouldn't eat, wouldn't sleep, wouldn't talk to, well, I'm embellishing now. But she, but, but she really did. She, for two solid days, she played solitaire so much so that she got a headache from the strain on her neck and looking up and down and that. that. I mean, it was, it was like it's genetic. It was like it was genetic. And uh, uh, when they got back stateside, there's still no cards in the house, and she's never touched a card since. Um, she does attend meetings on, on Friday nights. <laughs> that, too, is not true. 
Uh, well, she might attend meetings, but I sure don't know if she does. <laughs> no, I know that. Anyway, but, you know, but there, for some people, you know, something that is not evil in and of itself can be destructive. Uh, even though it doesn't bother you, it really bothers them. You've known people with gambling problems. I uh, had uh, one gentleman uh, who, who would share with me, he says, oh, I can control it. I know when to quit. He never quit before he had lost money. He says, oh, I have a sixth sense. I know what's going to happen. I couldn't tell him, you only get five senses, buddy. That sixth sense of yours is just wishful thinking. He said, oh, I get on lucky streaks. I only play when I'm gone on lucky streak. There's no such thing as a lucky streak. The house knows that. You can't beat the house. Well, he wouldn't listen, and it was destructive to him. He, uh, he was finally murdered in the parking lot of a gambling parlor uh, is what happened with him. So things can be innocent of themselves, but they can be destructive for others. My college roommate one time said, Wayne, my folks want to buy me a TV. I said, yes, Larry, let's get Oh, th this is back when TVs were in a room, and they had these big, long tubes and test patterns and and channels, you had knobs on them where you turned the channel. And, uh, you know, now we carry around video in our pockets. But back then, this was a big deal, okay? Said, All right, trust me on this. He said, I want, I want to, my folks want to give me a TV. I said, Larry, get the TV. He says, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Larry, why not? He says, because if I get a TV, I will never graduate. He said, I'll just watch it all the time. I know it. And you've known people like this. The people, if the TV turns on, they're just sitting there in front of the TV. You can't get through to them. You can't talk to them. They're just looking at the TV. You know what people like that are called? Grandchildren. I mean, that's, that's, that's just the way it is. You might as well give it up. But, but, there, you know, but there are some folks, you know, it's, it's such an addictive thing and such a, an all-consuming thing that what is, is, is basically a, a benign kind of thing becomes very destructive for them. And we need to understand that something might not be destructive for me. And I might know good and well that it's, it's sort of a neutral quantity, but for somebody else it might be very, very destruct, destructive in their life. And that's the point at which love takes over. That's the point at which I don't explain to them patiently why their thought process is wrong. That's the point at which I start loving them and say, fine, if watching TV is going to, to make you sin and flunk out of school, we, we won't have a TV. And, and, if, uh, and if cards are, are something that, that, that just, just uh, triggers that, 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 uh, that mechanism within you that, that is just destructive, then fine, we don't need cards. Um, I would... In my original notes, I, I had here a paragraph about Bunko. Yeah, you see, nobody laughed at that. <laughs> but uh, I took it out. So. <laughs> anyway, just... so something might be benign, but it can be destructive for someone else. And then uh, later on in, in verse 15, uh, Paul says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. See, it might be fine for you, but if it's destroying somebody else, you can't say you love them. By what you eat, do not destroy, and this is the line, the one for whom Christ died. See, here's what God gave up. Here's what God gave up. He gave up his son for people who were wrongheaded. He gave up his son, the prince of heaven, 
the one to whom all glory, honor, and praise is due. He sent him to earth to take the, the form, the fashion of a man. He walked among us, and he, and he suffered, and he was hungry, and he was tired, and he was abused, and he was persecuted. He came among us, and he suffered for us. Look what Jesus gave up for us when we had our wrong-headed ideas because he was not going to let his own die. And so um, uh, Jesus came out of love for us. And, and so Paul says, look, if Jesus has given his life for your brother, who are you to destroy him with playing cards or television or a glass of wine? You know, it, it, it's amazing to me um, how, how people get really uh, angry at you if you suggest maybe giving up alcohol as a beverage. Now, maybe you're there. Maybe you're getting right angry at me right now. But I remind you to keep your faith between you and God and don't bother me. But, uh, but, but I, it, it just surprises me. You know, you, you suggest to people, well, you, you really don't need wine and alcohol in your life. What? I can't drink. I want to drink. I need, I need, I need something to, to relax in the evening. Really? It's a special occasion. We need, we need something to drink. Really? Someday put a, just take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle of it and write on the left-hand side everything that drinking does for you, you know, all the good things that it does for you. And then put on the other side all the possible harm it could do. And you'll start to discover a few things. Did you know there's 14 million alcoholics in the United States today? By the way, I researched all this on Google. I decided I am never going to research in books again. I am going to research in Google from now on because if I say anything, you're just going to Google it on your phone, so I might as well just cut to the chase. All right. There's 14 million alcoholics in America today. More money is spent on treating alcoholism than is tr spent treating cancer. More money is lost to the American economy today through alcohol than is lost through cancer. By any metric, alcohol is, is like maybe the number one health problem in America today. But we love to drink, you know, and don't tell me I can't drink and I see nothing wrong with it. Well, that, that's fine, that's an opinion. But look at the brother for whom Christ died. He might be destroyed by it. Did you know that if there's four students, high school, high school students who drink, if four of them drink, one of them will drink half of the alcohol, the other three will split the rest. What does that tell you? That tells you that whenever there's a party and whenever there's drinking going on at a party, that there are one or two kids who are binge drinking and they are wrecking their lives. The others might be getting away with it, but there's two of them who are being absolutely destroyed by the freedom of the others. Is that love? Is that what a loving person would do? Say, oh, well, it's a problem of our puritanical past and the way we look at, at, at alcohol. After all, in Europe, they have a drinking society. They have wine all the time. Kids start drinking very, very early. They, have, they, they don't have the problems we have. They don't have exactly the problems we have. They're actually worse. They're actually worse. The drinking age in, in Europe is lower than it is in the United States, and binge drinking and alcoholism among young people and adolescents is higher than in the United States. The rate of cirrhosis of the liver in Europe is higher than in the United States. The amount of binge drinking in Europe is higher than in the United States. I mean, so by any, any metric, it's actually worse in Europe. But we want our alcohol, you know, we, we, we've got to have it. Uh, you know, and you say, oh, well, you can't, you know, prohibition was a failure. Um, I Googled this one. <laughs> it wasn't. Did you know that uh, uh, the 18th Amendment uh, that, uh, for prohibition, and 
just relax, it's just nice history. Uh, the 18th Amendment uh, went into effect in 1919, it was passed earlier than that, by three quarters of the states plus Congress. So it wasn't like it was, it, it was something that, that was just sort of filtered through by, a, by a, a narrow majority. I mean, the vast majority of Americans wanted this. And uh, so prohibition went into effect and the level of alcohol consumption in the United States went down 30%. And it did not come back up to pre-prohibition levels until decades after prohibition ended. You know why prohibition was stopped? It wasn't because people were mad at it. Most people were ignoring it. Um, uh, the state of Maryland, by the way, was a sanctuary state for, for um, drinking. Did, did you all know this? I didn't know until I read it, but it's kind of interesting. What the, what the state of Maryland did was they said, uh, we are not going to enforce the Volstead Act. Volstead Act was the enabling legislation that put the, the amendment uh, prohibition into effect. They said, we're not going to enforce it. We're not going to pass any state laws to enforce it. And in fact, we're going to stop federal agents from enforcing the Volstead Act in the state of Maryland. And so Maryland became known as the place to go if you wanted to drink. Um, and sort of explains a lot about Charles County. So, uh, you know, but that, that's sort of our, our history. But what, what happened is that Prior to um, the, the institution of the federal income tax, which was in, during the, the 19-teens, I forget the exact date, um, but prior to the income tax, fully one-third of the revenue to the federal government came from taxes on liquor and alcohol. One-third of it did. And then we instituted the income tax, right? And, and uh, the, the, when it was passed, it was said, well, it will only be 1% or 2% on the richest Americans. That, that was the income tax that was passed. And, of course, it stayed that way. But, uh, uh, but by the end of World War I, 1918, fully uh, two-thirds of the revenue to the federal government came from the income tax. What does that mean? That means, and they didn't stop the other taxes, by the way. So what that meant was now the federal government had plenty of money to do everything they wanted to, and Congress could buy all the votes they wanted to, and so they were happy. And so they said, well, we can get rid of the alcohol tax. We don't really need alcohol, and, and there were a lot of, lot of uh, uh, reasons to do that. And so the, the prohibition uh, amendment was, was passed, and our country uh, went dry, uh, supposedly. And, uh, and, and there you go. It, it was a financial decision. We didn't need the money. By the way, crime did not increase during prohibition. The murder rate in America actually went down during the 1920s. And with the end of prohibition, crime did not cease. In fact, if you think about the really big criminals that you remember, guys like Machine Gun Kelly, Babyface Nelson, Ma and Pa, uh, not Pa Barker, but the Ma Barker gang, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger. Am I the only guy who knows these were all bank robbers? They were all in the 1930s. I mean, that's when your crime spree was. It was during the 1930s. Um, and, and the people like uh, Al Capone was in, in prison by then. But people like Al Capone, they just they, they stopped bootlegging, but they went back into prostitution, extortion, and uh, racketeering, and, um, and drugs. So the crime didn't change with prohibition, it, and it didn't cause um, uh, crime either. Uh, so uh, anyway, but back to why it was a repeal. Well, in 1929, the stock market crashed, and everybody lost all their money, and there was no more income, and so no more income tax, and so the amount of revenue to the federal government after the stock market crash in 1929 went down so that instead of, of, of having all this money, you had just this paltry sum, like 25% of what you used to have 
um, in federal revenue from income tax. And so now Congress didn't have enough money to buy votes. And so uh, they decided we need a source of income. And what they said was, aha, I know what we'll do. We'll tax the booze. And so prohibition was repealed in order to have something to tax. Does this sound familiar today to anybody? You know, it was just a, it was a financial decision. And so the, the New Deal uh, programs of, of FDR were funded by a tax on alcohol. And so that, that's the way it worked. Now, I think I've, I've chased this rabbit far enough. Let me go back to where I wanted to be. And that is this. Is it worth it if you're going to kill somebody? Is it worth it? I mean, you, you can think of it this way. Roughly one in 12 people who drink is going to be an alcoholic. Uh, it's something like that. And uh, so what we'll do is we'll put 12 people in a room. You'll be one of them. You're in the room with 11 other people, and they put two pistols in the room. So a total of 12 chambers, and there's one bullet in one chamber. They say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give $1,000 to everybody in this room, except one. Because what we're going to do is we're going to pass the pistols around. As soon as somebody's shot, that's the person who doesn't get the money. The rest of you each get $1,000. Only one of you has to die. Would you play that game? Would it be moral to play that game? And yet that's what we do every time we say that drinking is fine. We're just playing roulette, Russian roulette, with somebody else's life. And Paul says, is it worth it? on the basis of some so-called freedom that you're going to kill somebody for whom Christ died. You see, not all things are, are sinful. You know, a lot of things, they're, they're not sinful one way or the other. But when you start to think through the ramifications and the outworkings of it, then you start to see that the law of love takes over in a way that you would imagine. And this is true in, in cultural issues, and mor in, not moral issues, but in cultural issues, economic issues, political issues, um, there are so many places in which we need to understand that the law of love constrains us more than our desires and our, our, our whim and our, our um, uh, you know, putting our, our freedom before other people's well-being. Uh, because after all, what did Christ do? He put our well-being before his, himself, and he died for us. You know? And so if all, all you're doing is giving up a little bit, in life. I, I think of it sort of like the peanut analogy. And I'm going to confess to you, the first time I heard about peanut analogies, I thought, come on, give me a break. You know, this, this, this has got to be nuts. Um, <laughs> but uh, you, you did too. I mean, don't, don't look at me that way. You know, because you, you thought the same thing. What are you talking about? Peanut analogy? You know, people are actually dying from peanuts. Come on, I've been pe eating peanuts all my life. Why should I have to give up peanuts? Well, you don't have to as long as there's nobody in your life with a peanut allergy. But I'm telling you, somebody comes into your home, the doctor says, you know, that kid has a peanut allergy. What's the first thing you do? You pull every peanut in the house out. Why? Because you love him. You've got the freedom to eat peanuts. You could hide them in the chandelier, you know. You could keep them in a hermetically sealed mayonnaise jar and only pull them out and he'll never know. But in point of fact, if you love somebody, you'll give it up because it's just not worth it you're going to love somebody else. So that's what Paul is saying. You say, look, if, if your behavior, you know, even though you can justify it, even though you can, you can make a rational argument for it, if it's going to kill somebody, it doesn't matter why. You've got to rethink it and you've got to look at it in light of the law of love. The last verse I want to bring to us is verse 17. He says, for the kingdom of God, and when, and when Paul talks about the kingdom of God, and this is about the only time he does, maybe one other time, but when Paul talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about God's sovereign rule over his people. 
See, God's kingdom extends over all creation. God is king over all the universe, and what God says goes. I mean, when he sets down the laws, the planets are not going to break those laws, and, the, and, and nature is not going to break the law that, that God has set down to constrain it. But God has also given his commandment and his will and his sovereign authority over people who have a choice, over, over those of us who, who are called to respond to him. And God is sovereign. So his kingdom reigns over us in our decision-making process. So when he says the kingdom of God, it, it is this reign in Jesus Christ over the people of Christ. For the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not about what you can do to feel good. See, when you see that, those words, eating and drinking, he's saying, these are the, these are the issues in front of us that, that we're saying, well, I, I just enjoy this stuff and, and I'm free in Christ and all that. He says, no, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, to understand that, I think, it, let me just uh, give you uh, Romans 5.1, because you've got it memorized, but I'll read it for you anyway. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and we're justified uh, in Greek is the same word family as righteousness, and so uh, since we've been, been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and in that sense made righteous, um, that, so we, we've been brought into a right relationship with God. And so the righteousness of God is, has come into our lives by faith. We have peace with God. We're no longer contending with God, but we have, uh, we're in a relationship where God wants us to be. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, so the, the, Romans 5.1 is really the commentary on Romans 14.17, that the, the kingdom of God is all about that righteousness. It's the righteousness of God that saved us, and then it's the righteousness to which he has called us. It's all about the peace of God, the peace that we have with God, and the peace of God that is to be poured into our lives and to affect our relationships with others. And it's the joy that we have in knowing our Father in heaven through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that joy is to be brought into our relationships with others, that the joy of Christ would govern what we do and what we say. And so um, as, as we look at this passage, come through and, and conclude chapter 14, it's basically this. There's a lot of things in life that you, you're going to have to make a decision about and make them um, those decisions prayerfully and get all the facts and, and think it through. But above all, make your decisions and form your opinions in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and in submission to the law of love with respect to those around you so that God would be honored and glorified. We're coming to the table. We're coming to the table. And my challenge to you this morning is not just that you would remember in this moment Christ, and I hope you do, but then in coming to the table, you would uh, really commit yourself to remembering Christ every moment, every venue, every relationship. Let's pray together. And Father, again, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would give us the courage of faith to be obedient, and that our lives would reflect who you are and would give you honor and praise, that in us Jesus would be lifted up and exalted. And Father, in the way in which we live out with others, that we would just honor and glorify you. Father, I ask this for your glory, and I ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.